It's that time of week, the time you've been waiting for. It's time for Goat Gab, a weekly podcast about all things in the dairy goat industry. Sit back and enjoy an hour or so with your hosts, Laura Warren Hughes and Cameron Jedlowski, as we talk about ideas and topics that matter to the dairy goat world. Hello, Goat Gabbers, and welcome to another episode of Goat Gab. We're glad to be with you this week and um, hope you're enjoying this beautiful fall weather. As always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Laura Warren Hughes. And I'm the other co-host, Cameron Jedlowski. This week, we're bringing back a guest, a very special guest, um, all the way from the great state of California, one of the future directors of ADGA as well there, Ben Rupchist. Did I say that right, Ben? Yep, that's correct. All right, Ben, do you want to kind of introduce yourself to the listeners? You were on back in the day, but kind of reintroduce yourself to the listeners and kind of talk about your upbringing and experience in dairy goats and what your herd name is and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, so I'm Ben Rupchis. I Some of you may know me from when I was growing up 4-H on the East Coast. I grew up in Virginia and showed all throughout Virginia, Maryland, North Carolina, West Virginia. Um, attended quite a few national shows as a youth. When I graduated college, I uh, took a job at Redwood Hill Farm and worked there for about a year. That was a really amazing experience and a great opportunity to be in a different part of the country and meet some really awesome people and work with some really great people. Uh, From there, I went back to Virginia briefly and then um, moved back to California and managed a dairy that was shipping milk, White Whale Farm. We were shipping milk to Redwood Hill Farm and Creamery, and then uh, put in an on-site creamery and made cheese on the farm. And then uh, in about 2016, I went to work for Stephanie Roby at Grand Ronde Dairy in northeastern Oregon. And that was as she was uh, expanding and putting in the amazing facility that she has there currently. Um, that was really a, a great learning experience, uh, the whole construction process and um, building a, a dairy you know, facility basically from scratch. And then I moved back to California again. So this is that was the third time that I've moved to California. So maybe I'm here to stay now. Uh, and I currently, I moved back to take a position at UC Davis at the goat facility in the animal science department there. And I've been here about four and a half years now. I'm a judge. Uh, my herd name is Barely. I breed primarily Alpines and Sonnens. Alpines are what I started with uh, in 4-H. Um, there are a few Toggenbergs and I've worked with a few other breeds. My wife, Rebecca, she has, uh, La Manchas and Sonnens. So we've definitely got some La Manchas around and I think that covers most, most of the information. Ben, I have a quick question for you. Yeah. Tell me how you got your herd name. Uh, how I got my herd name. That's a good one. So where, uh, my family had a farm and where I grew up was uh, right along the Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia, uh, just outside the Shenandoah National Park. And it had a very, very high population density of black bears. So, you know, we didn't have a dairy and there were lots of bears around. So that became uh, the, the herd name that I settled on, Barely. And, that is very uh, cool. Yeah, so sort of uh, the other end of the, you know, where we're at in California, actually, this last week, 
the sort of big news in the little town, which only has you know, a few hundred people um, where I live, is that there's been a black bear going around and breaking into people's chicken coops and all sorts of stuff at night. So our guardian dogs are on full alert. We've been playing a radio at night, hoping that it doesn't cause any issues for us. So it's like being back back a kid again, huh? Yeah, it is. It is. A little nerve-wracking, but... Going right along here with that, uh, Laura, what's happening at your place? It's uh, very bucky at my house right now. Probably like most everybody else, but boy, I'll tell you, you get out of the truck and you take a deep whiff and you're like, oh yeah, it's fall. So been breeding some goats and uh, utilizing some creative housing solutions for bucks that, you know, think that they know better than I do of who needs to be bred today. So um, saying not today to some girls and, and come on out to some other ones and, you know, like everybody else enjoying, enjoying the exciting part of fall, which is that whole fun breeding season. So, so that's Laura, the main thing here. Laura, you texted me the other day and you said, Cameron, I don't know if I should AI this goat or not. What did you end up doing? I didn't. Oh, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. Much, you have so much self-control. <laughs> well, actually I, I was tired and it was me here by myself. There was nobody else. And I just, just decided it would be better for another day. So um, anyway, yeah, self-control is not always my, my thing, but something else I wanted to bring up. This is kind of a special week for us here at Goat Gab. It is. What, what's going on at Goat Gab? Well, our inaugural episode aired 929 of 1920. So we are celebrating our third birthday this week. 1920 or 2000. <laughs> oh, <laughs> did I say that? How about 2020? <laughs> I'm not that, I'm old, guys, but I'm not that old. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> ah, anyway, that was good. Um, yeah, so it's our third birthday. So, um, you know, as I look back at some of the past episodes, it's been a lot of fun. As my kids remind me, some of them are a little on the cringy side, especially when we were just trying to figure out what we were doing in the beginning. But we're just really happy for all of our uh, listeners who've been here along the way with us and, um, you know, been the series that you were part of back in the 20s. That's one of my very favorite series that we've done. So it's kind of fitting to have you back this week. I, I should add, too, that I had the chance to judge the Western National in Canada this summer, and you have an international following that so, several exhibitors up there commented on that series and go gab and that they really look forward to listening to the podcast. Aww. Well, that's, that's pretty cool. Well, hey, hey to our Canadian listeners. So we're, we're glad to have you guys. So. Hey. hey, thanks. Hey. <laughs> ben, I want to ask you a question here. When when you AI a goat, do you are do you like to you know you have two people when you AI a goat? Do you like Rebecca to be there or somebody or a farm help or somebody there? Or do you like to go at it solo? Um, definitely, it is a group project, and both Rebecca and I are there, and as much as possible. We have had specific instances where you know, one of us isn't around and it had to do it solo, but it, the whole process is just a lot easier and smoother um, with two people, one person to get the goat ready and put a speculum in the other person to 
get the gun and sheath ready and bossing and so do I, I have a do you and Rebecca um get a little high strung when you do AIs because my wife and I do that and like there's a lot of yelling and like do this do that all sorts of stuff that is not super healthy in a marriage yeah I mean you know it's like the <laughs> stereotype about working cattle or whatever. <laughs> Uh, I mean, if everything goes, most of the time at this point, we've got a pretty smooth system that it goes pretty well. Um, sometimes catching the goat is the most difficult part because they're in heat and they want to be by the box. And, you know, we try to try to line it up that we're going to AI them while we have them out for milking. Uh, but that doesn't always happen. Okay. So I want to, I want to pick your brain here. I, I, we're going to, I'm sorry, we're, I, I, I got to divulge here. How do you do your AIs, Ben? Do you do it based off timing or do you do it based off mucus? Timing and just the circumstances of our day and routine and what else is going on because, you know, we both have full-time jobs and, you know, necessity is, you know, sometimes, well, this is, this is the time that we have to AI the goat and, we're pretty prudent in terms of, you know, well, this is a buck that we have a fair amount of semen on or that we can get more semen on. So we're more likely to just go for it. Uh, sometimes if there's, you know, a buck that we've only got a couple straws and it's pretty irreplaceable, then we'll be a lot more, you know, the heat has to be just right. And we'll only AI or if we can get the timing right on the heat and we feel like everything's kind of normal and the stars align. So there's, there's a lot of circumstantial stuff that goes into when it happens exactly you see that bright light that shines out of the parting of the clouds in heaven and it says yes do this breeding now yeah yeah that's, that's about it. <laughs> okay yeah I'm glad, I'm glad it's not just me and i always worry about that as well because when we ai go sometimes it's just super discombobulated and they're maybe screaming every once in a while yeah. So are you are you guys saying that this should be one of those litmus tests on whether or not a couple's compatible is instead of working cows together, you ought to try to breed AI goats together? Oh, nothing beats taking pictures. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, amen. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree. I mean, if you're not screaming at each other doing the pictures. Actually, I will tell you that we we had a fairly calm picture taking session this year. I was very proud of myself because I'm the one that's taking the pictures. Oh gosh, picture taking, yuck! We're oh, break, makes me break out in hives just thinking about it. It's bad. So, yeah. Ben, with that caveat, what is happening at your farm this time of year? Breeding goats, AIing goats. I AI the goat just a couple hours ago, so. Um, that is, that is the number one item right now. We're still milking quite a few goats, uh, but breeding is the big thing. And it's that tricky time of the year where I think kind of like you and Laura said, where you're like, well, should we AI or should we not AI or this is the first heat? Is she going to be in heat again in five to seven days? Our goats this summer was relatively mild and they're cycling a little bit earlier than they have in the past couple of years. So that's nice in a way, uh, but still, you know, makes us a little hesitant to thaw out that straw semen just because, you know, well, will she be in heat in five days? And so that's, that's a big thing. Just breeding goats, uh, California, 
our area doesn't really get any rain over the summer. So we've got a little bit in the forecast for Monday. So there's some cleanup that goes into that, you know, move hay inside, stuff like that. It's very different than other parts of the country. We get, you know, yeah, we have fires, but we get kind of spoiled because you go four to six months with no rain at all. And you're just like, oh, everything can be outside. And, you know, as long as goats have some shade, it's good. Have to make sure everybody's calf hutches are all good for bucks and kids and stuff like that. Wow. I, I just can't hardly imagine that, but wow. <laughs> we, we've been praying for rain around here and we did get some this afternoon. So it was, it was a good thing. So. And but, it seems like it won't stop. I mean, it's like every other day up here, a quarter of an inch, a tenth of an inch, half an inch one day we got. I mean, it's the rain here has been very hit or miss and it's really delayed, you know, Midwest harvest up here for us. So it's, it's been a weird fall. Yeah. Then what percentage of your personal herd do you AI? Um, maybe 20 or 25% would be my guess. Terrible semen hoarders. We have multiple tanks and years and years worth of semen. So there is, we're very much in the like, we have it, we should use it. <laughs> I Thank love you. that. Thank you. That's, Yes. Yeah. We need more people like Ben Rockchis. Okay. <laughs> Don't hoard it. Use it. Yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> Karen, you've been really busy on the breeding front, but a little bit of a different angle. Yes, I have been. Um, it's been a weird year. So last when, um, last Monday I had zero goats bred excuse me, the Monday, yeah, last Monday I had zero goats bred, and now I have 15 goats bred um, and over a very short time frame, and they all come with lots of different co conditions, and that, that just sounds weird, but let me explain that here. So I've bred three naturally, pay, buck, buck to doe, and um, all sorts of stuff. So the easy, I call those the easy ones there. The second one we did, we've done two AIs, um, one laparoscopic, one regular AI. So that was really cool. Um, and then we did um, all of our transfers. So we've got our transfers done and, and all sorts of stuff there from our IVF program that we did here two weeks ago after when this episode gets released. It'll be two weeks after when we release this episode. So um, those, got, those got shipped. Those got fertilized, then came back to the house, transferred into our goats. And with those transfers um, came lots of information that we learned about the inside of the goats, both good and bad. Are you going to go into that or are you just going to leave it at that, Cameron? No, oh, I'll tell the world. I don't care. Um, so we, we, we had 12 that we were going to um, put babies in. Um, 10 of them received embryos. Uh, one of them, the inside was not as good as what my, my veterinarian had wanted to see. So we kicked that out. She was one of my Alpine doe kids. So she's going to get bred naturally. Yay. Uh, um, and then the other one. <laughs> was um didn't have the most functional body parts uh that were working in the most seamless pattern bummer yes so when um you think your girl is a girl 
and it's not really a girl, you, I, I think you can kick that out. So, so was out of curiosity, was that one, uh, did she have buck siblings in her litter? Do you know? Or? I, I actually don't. I, I remember correctly. I think there was, um, I think it was quad does actually, but I would have to go back and check. Um, and, and it's interesting. Somebody that you know really well asked that exact same question. Um, um, Mr. Uh, a certain Campbell boy, um, asked that exact same question. So I, I don't know, um, the answer, but it's probably okay. Okay. So I'm just going to ask that then, um, then are are you implying or are are you just flat out saying that you have a higher percentage of animals that have reproductive problems when like maybe they're uh, the single doe in a group of quads and the others are all bucks? Um, I've certainly seen cases and like we've had a couple both at Davis and at home this year, three Martins that were the single doe kid and a set of triplets. Um, very interesting. I mean, it, it would follow since that's, you know, very common in cattle that heifers born twin to a bull or free martins. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay. I, I pulled up Agatha Genetics real quick. I guess that wasn't the year she had quads. I She might have had quads, but they're not registered there. So I don't know that um, that, uh, there, uh, but but it's okay. There was definitely some, some male reproductive organs inside of her where her uterus should have been. So... And Laura, you'll appreciate this as well. How you say you don't mean to be a Pollyanna. She was a Pollyanna because that's her name. <laughs> Poor thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was that. That was my um, interesting week there. On on that, she was my dad's goat, not mine. So, um, I wanted to, I want to point that out there. Um, and and so uh, she's going to go back to my dad's and uh, go meet the taco man. Darn it. That's, that's okay. Yeah, that's, that's okay. That's, that's the goat can provide one more, um, blessing to us. Um, if she couldn't bless us with her kids or the ability to carry the Alpines kids. Yeah. Well, um, Adga stuff. Do we have any Adga news? Uh, nope. Just, uh, registration for Tulsa's open there. Um, and I bet you two, Ben and Laura, are brushing up on your year-end reports for the big board of directors meeting, right? Yes, I am definitely uh, reading year-end reports and reading just a lot of material uh, as a new and incoming director on being a director and responsibilities and making sure that I am as uh, educated and up to speed as possible. Due diligence is a good thing, Mr. Reptious, and I think it will be a I think it'll be a good meeting. Um, I'm hoping that I'm hoping that the committees that don't have their year-end reports in yet hurry up and get them in because it's always to me it's always very frustrating when you get to the convention and you haven't read anything from a committee and they spring a bunch of stuff on you. So I'm hoping hoping we'll get to see those. The other one that I would add is as a new and incoming director, I've reached out to a few current directors and they've been really wonderfully supportive and uh, helpful in terms of guidance and 
recommendations and just sort of letting me know how how everything will work and you know what we have to look forward to in Tulsa. So I really appreciate that. It'll be a meeting. I really would encourage everybody who hasn't made that decision to go to Tulsa to go ahead and come. And, uh, you know, if you have the time, pop in and watch some of the, the board of directors meeting and see what your elected directors are doing and uh, kind of get an idea of AGA's governance. Cause I think it's always a real eye opening experience to, to observe some of those meetings. Also, even if you can't make it to Tulsa, and I've told members in my district this, like reach out to your director and let them know good things, bad things, where there's progress, where there's not progress, because really members are the ones that, you know, they have, there are thousands that have all sorts of different experiences and use different programs in different ways and that they're really the feet on the ground in terms of seeing how everything is working. It's that they're a really outstanding resource. Yeah. Agreed. I, I, I agree on that one. This week we're bringing a sponsor back here. Uh, we are sponsored by the WDGA, the Wisconsin Dairy Goat Association and their Arlington fall conference and elite select sale. This uh, conference held October 14th, 2023. It's going to be held in Arlington, Wisconsin, directly north of Madison. Great list of speakers and opportunities to learn about goats and visit with friends, including a keynote speaker from Stephanie Rovey. Great classes and sessions from Vita Plus, uh, Doctors of Veterinary Medicine, and other things as well there. And it all ends with the WDGA Select Sale as well. If you're interested, find the event on Facebook. Facebook, um, and you can find more information about it and sign up for it as well. Ben, are you ready to dive into your wealth of knowledge? Yeah, this this is my my favorite subject of all. So probably, I think. Awesome. I'm excited. Cool. All right. So let's get started here. I guess walk me because I, I I remember as a kid this is gonna sound really creepy Ben but I remember you like at the national show like you like I kind of looked up to you I saw you working hard with your goats I remembered your showmanship goat and I was like frantically finding the internet trying to find your showmanship goat because I really I vividly remember her because she milked a crap ton <laughs> and she won all the production awards at the national show all the time there um, but can you kind of walk us through your upbringing upbringing in goats? And how that kind of shaped you to where you are now? Yeah. So, like I said, I started with Alpines. And I had, um, there were two does. I, I got a kid in 1999 and a dry yearling um, kid in the spring of 99 and a dry yearling in the fall of 99. And those were the first two goats. And uh the, the dry yearling, she was the last alpine from a breeder in Virginia, uh, Kathy Price, who was mainly known for togs and La Manchas. And she went back. She had some iron rod and walnut fork, and she was sired by a Sandstorms buck, Sandstorms superstar. And that was uh, Sandstorms Rock Salida son. And she was a doe. She was interesting because she, she had her flaws. She had a pretty bad front end. She had very posty rear legs. She had a beautiful udder, very high rear udder, long floor udder, and she milked a ton. And she would milk 16 to 18 pounds. We weren't on test yet, 
no special hay, humidity of Virginia. She was just a hardy, hardworking goat. And she didn't transmit her milk as much as maybe she could have, and her components weren't outstanding. But I think she was kind of the goat that sort of was, you know, made me think about, well, this is what a dairy goat should be. They should work hard and make a lot of milk. And that kind of laid the foundation for that. I added a couple of a Joe Kid and a Buck Kid from Cherry Glen that they they really impacted my sense of type and structure, and they're really elegant alpines. Um, the buck really did well for me. I had multiple permanent champion and excellent 91 daughters. And then the, the goat that you're thinking of, um, I'm pretty sure would have been barely reprised Alexandria. Yes. And she, she was, she was the goat for me. She was the goat that really absolutely set in stone what I thought, you know, how dairy goats should work and, you know, I would say that in a way she was kind of a life-changing goat for me because she really opened up doors and just kind of expanded my perspective on things. She was uh, she was a purebred doe. I bought her dam as an aged doe from someone that had uh, gone through 4-H and graduated. And then I AI'd her to that doe that I bought, who was a Nottaway Dragon Slayer daughter. Leverett Acres Holly was Alex's dam. And I AI'd her. This was a... Going to convention, went to my first convention, and around the room there are different uh, AI companies that had their semen catalogs, and went around and you know, looked at different catalogs and picked out um, semen from a buck, Sunshine Rima Reprise, and then AI. It was actually the year after that that we finally AI Holly to Reprise, and that gave us Alex. And Alex was a doe. She milked 4,000 pounds four times, scored 92 four times, was total performer at nationals, uh, showed uh, nationals as a 10-year-old on an extended lactation. She was she had big teats, and she was kind of posty and had uh, softer pasterns, but there was a lot that was good about her. She was really dairy and strong and open and had a really strong front end and a beautiful rump and a wide rear udder, really strong medial. And she was she was a goat that really transmitted a lot of milk and was the one that sort of really, uh, just like I said, set in stone. I was like, well, you know, dairy goats, we should breed for type and things that contribute to a, a long, productive lifetime. And they should milk a lot, too. And she, she really did those things. And she had a big personality, too. She would, in the show ring, she would kind of drag you around and she was chewing your cud the whole time. And just had a lot of attitude. Ben, was she the, did she have a son that was in the spotlight sale? She did have a son in the spotlight sale. That was yep, the year after she was a total performer. She had, uh, I think it was the Michigan convention, Grand Rapids maybe. And she had a son he sold for 5,000. That buck had two full brothers. Unfortunately, the herd he went into wasn't on test or anything. Um, it was a, a dairy that bought him. And, but she had two other sons that were full brothers to that buck that got used very widely. Uh, one kind of on the West Coast, em- barely Emperor Alakai, and then he's been used AI all over the country, and uh, barely Emperor Anakumalu. And both of those bucks uh, got proofs and are on the elite list. Alakai is still 99th percentile. He's had daughters milk 4,000 pounds, and I think four different herds now. And so she, she was a doe that she really made good sons, good daughters. And at this point, 
all of my alpines, including the ones that go back to the other lines, all of them have Alex in them somewhere in their pedigree. Okay, that's really cool. I think that leads us into perfect th- perfect transition here. Thinking about elites and PTIs and PTAs and PTOs and what, what, whatever the, the 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 alphabet soup of acronyms are when it comes to comes to genetics here, Ben, I feel like you have a lot of experience with those working in the commercial world, correct? Yes. Yep. They're a, a great tool, both on the commercial side and for people with smaller numbers of goats. So I think delving into it and explaining some of this alphabet soup is like the perfect way to start because I know that I know just enough to be a little bit dangerous. I'd like to know a lot more and I'm betting that a lot of our listeners are kind of in the same boat. So have at it, Professor Ben. All right. So, and I should give credit to those that have uh, taught me a lot. I've done reading and I sort of miss I'm glad for this podcast because we don't have UCN or Dairy Goat Journal anymore. And those were really great resources in terms of the articles that they published. And so some of what I learned was from articles there, some things online, some from you know, Hordes Dairymen, other dairy cattle publications, uh, Scott Hoyman at Capricorn Farms. I started when I was in 4-H showing for them. And they uh, he taught me a lot about how these numbers work. And uh, there were some workshops in Maryland and Virginia that had presentations on the sire summaries and the big old books of them that used to be printed and sent out. And I really just kind of latched onto all that data. Now it's all in Adga Genetics. And that's a really amazing resource that I can kind of break down what's there and go over, you know, how we use those different things. So I think if it's good with you all, I'll start with PTAs. Does that sound good? Perfect. All right. And I'm going to stick to PTAs for milk. There are also type PTAs for all the linear traits that data is gathered on when the appraiser visits your farm and scores your goats. For the production PTAs, the main uh, categories are milk. So that's PTAM, if we're referring to it just by the acronym, butterfat, PTAF uh, by the acronym, and then PTAP for protein. Fat and protein also have a percentage number that's tied to them. The general basis of the PTA is it takes your raw, your raw data is taken. So those are all of your milk tests ever, all the milk tests ever that anybody puts in, provided that it's, you know, qualifies and there's not outlier data and things like that gets sifted through a little bit. But every time that you have a milk test, that the weight and the butterfat percentage and the protein percentage, those go to your dairy records processing center. And then from there to the CDCB, the Center for Dairy Cattle Breeding. And they get run through some pretty advanced math and adjusted for the age at which the goat freshened, some environmental factors, location, uh, the season that the goat freshened, all sorts of things that brings them those numbers onto a, a level playing field or what's, you know, that allows comparison across different regions, ages, management systems. So we can compare 
basically a yearling in California with a three-year-old in North Carolina. And the mature equivalents that you might see on your DHI sheets, those are the, that's kind of one step in that process. Then there are additional steps beyond that. And what the PTA is, it's a genetic index or predictor of genetic transmitting ability. That's the predicted transmitting ability is what the PTA stands for. And that indicates genetically what the predisposition for that animal is relative to the breed base. So the production PTAs are breed specific. So they'll be, you can't compare a Nubian with a PTAM of 200 with an Alpine with a PTAM of 200. Those aren't really the same bucks. They have different breed bases. So it's breed specific. And it generally indicates the deviation from that breed genetic average. So a buck that's plus 200 would be transmitting milk at a relatively high level relative to the genetic base. A buck that was minus 100 or 200 would be um, below average or below the genetic base. Are you following that? Yeah, that makes sense. So just a quick question, not to do a rabbit hole. What happens with grades and experimentals? So experimentals um, for production evaluations are treated as their own breed. So even if it's a Nubian La Mancha cross, it gets compared to a Sonnen Alpine cross. Okay. Experimentals are just kind of treated as their own breed for the production evaluations. Okay, cool. Yeah, makes sense. Yep. Um, so you have milk and the range on milk is usually in the low hundreds, you know, somewhere, uh, I'm I'm not sure what the highest buck is right now, but 500 is on the extreme high side, uh, either positive or negative. And, you know, bucks that are very average might be, you know, in the zero to 50 range, plus or minus. Um, For fat and protein, uh, those are smaller numbers, just in the same way that when you're you know, goat completes her lactation. If she's milked 2,500 pounds, uh, her fat and protein will just be a small percentage of that. So the fat and protein PTAs, and these are all expressed in pounds. So it's 200 pounds of milk or eight pounds of fat or eight pounds of protein when you look at the PTA. Okay. That's the PTA. The other really vital part on PTAs for production is the REL. So that's the reliability. And these, that indicates uh, how many data points basically are going into that PTA. And the higher reliability, that means that there are more data points. So that's more daughters of a buck on test, uh, a doe with more test days. So a, a yearling that the production evaluations generally come out in early August and December, a yearling that freshened in may and had two tests before that august run her reliability will be very low likewise if a buck has five daughters that freshen and they all are first lactation not completed their lactation his rel will be quite low as well over time and many daughters the reliability goes up so you know the very famous bucks in various breeds you know redwood hills marvelous prophet and uh Frosty Marvin and Sodium Oak Saison, those are the bucks with the very, very highest reliabilities just because they have a lot of daughters. And 
into the PTA is not just the individual animal's performance, but also the performance of their progeny. So you have that proof over multiple generations in older bucks. So that's one where in younger animals, when they have PTAs, one direction or another, or relatively few data points going into their PTA, we should be a little bit conservative in you know, how much confidence we put into the evaluation at that time. So is that one of the reasons why it's so important to try to get daughters in multiple herds on test, not just your own herd? Yes. And that is like, that is, that's one of the things that I love most about the production evaluations and DHI testing is it's a really great collaborative project because, you know, the more daughters, the more goats that are getting tested, the more accurate the data and the better the tool is that we have to use uh, when we make our breeding decisions and we decide what semen to use and who to AI to. So, and like, that's something that like in the, especially there was kind of a, a peak in heyday in the early eighties and into the mid eighties of lots and lots of herds, you know, it was a time where people were getting into goats and, you know, kind of back to the land movement. A lot of those herds, even if they only had, you know, 10 goats or 20 goats, they were on test and there was a lot of collaboration and a lot of, bucks that generated proofs at that time and it was really and i think like that's right now some of the full-size breeds are struggling in terms of their overall numbers but one thing with nigerians is i see a lot of that kind of same vibrancy and collaborative effort and with nigerian dwarf breeders and I, I admire that um it's great you know the more the more daughters on test the more herd mates those daughters have the more reliability there is because it's all it's all based on not just the individual performance but how that compares to the other members of the herd so if you have eight yearlings that freshen or eight two-year-olds that freshen and generally you know depending on the genetics of those two-year-olds or yearlings the highest pta will be you know within the lines that perform the best in that group because they're thinking that they're in the same herd, they're being managed the same. So what's making the difference in um, the production is the genetic variation, not um, herd management or nutrition. Exactly, exactly. And then the ultimate confirmation of that is when you have daughters of a buck in multiple herds that are the best daughters in multiple herds, because then you can be like, that's this buck with confidence. Cool. Okay. That makes sense. It's really interesting because naturally when you were talking, I was like, I have to pull up an example. So I pulled up your doe. I pulled up uh, Alexandria actually. And I was like, oh, I want to look at a buck. So I pulled up the, one of the most famous Alpine bucks. And let's just use him for an example here. Sodium Oaks Saison, which all three of us on this podcast have experience with there. And it's very interesting because I would think his reliability score would be this high. Does he, you guys want to guess what it is? I'm going to guess he's over 90, and there aren't very many dairy goat bucks that are over 90, but I bet he is. Okay. Laura, do you have a guess? Nope, I don't have a guess. 97% reliability. Wow. <laughs> yeah. No, that that that's that's pretty great. One, if we want a more recent example that I really like, yeah. it's uh, Rochester, okay. who you know, is a buck that you all are very familiar with, I'm sure. Yeah. And the buck that had the benefit of being used in multiple different herds. So he's one that of younger bucks, I think he's one of the highest reliability. Um, 
And I, I know that he's since deceased, but he is much newer than Saison. Um, and he's has quite a high reliability um, for bucks of his generation. Yes, you're right. I mean, he's at 85% reliability, um, which is which is super interesting there. But again, mm-hmm. also not as many herds as Saison naturally there on that. Not as many number of daughters, which kind of surprises me with the amount of Rochester I've seen. But again, it's probably regional bias there on that because I, I know a lot of Rochesters and, you know, I know a lot of herds that have Rochesters. So, um, but, but yeah, really interesting. He's 85% and he's in the 90th percentile. So that, if, if you don't mind, I'll talk about percentile for a minute now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. PTAs feed directly into that. So in the in the world, most goat milk, and especially in the U.S., most goat milk is used for cheese making. Um, when we go to the grocery store, there's a lot more uh, goat milk that, that started as milk and is now cheese being sold versus fluid milk being sold in the grocery store. So the biggest driver of cheese yield is protein percentage in the milk, and the percentile it combines the PTAM, the PTAF, and the PTAP, and it weights most heavily the PTA for protein. So that's its weight about about 70%, slightly less than 70%. Fat accounts for almost the entire rest of it. Actual milk pounds is less than 1% in the percentile rankings. Um, So it's about 70% protein, 30% fat. And then the way the percentile works is uh, basically, um, it's all the bucks with active evaluation. So that means bucks that currently have daughters being registered and generating DHI data. Um, so if a buck hasn't been used for 10 years, he's not going to have a percentile. It'll just show zero on good genetics there. Um, but for the bucks that are actively used, uh, they're all ranked top to bottom. And it's not a direct... There's not a direct formula from the PTAM and PTAP. It's that 70 to 30, roughly, protein to fat. And then the bucks are just ranked top to bottom. So it's interesting. If you look at uh, experimentals, there aren't a lot of experimental bucks that are used widely. And at one point, there were only, I think, four experimental bucks that were in active use in multiple herds and qualified for a percentile. So their percentile rankings were... 1, 26, 51, and 76. It was a you know very good example of how percentiles work. So that's like Rochester and I think Alakai are the two uh, 99th percentile bucks right now. Is that right? Yes, I do believe so. At least in the purebred alpine world, I do believe. Yeah. And like, so the other point there is that larger or breeds with greater numbers of goats will have more bucks with high percentiles. So Nigerian dwarves and Nubians will have more bucks that are 85th percentile or greater than Toggenbergs or Sables or Experimentals. So AI can really impact those numbers too, uh, just from the logistic part that you can have daughters all over the country. Absolutely. Like AI is vital for, uh, allowing the percentile system to really work and just the the proof system of PTAs, because like I said, you know, we, if you only use a buck in one herd, how much does it really tell you unless you have a really big herd? Um, And most of us, you know, don't have hundreds of goats or thousands of goats uh, to work with. So 
the best way that we can achieve those high degrees of confidence in what an animal's doing or transmitting genetically is by sharing with one another and you know ensuring that genetics are used in different situations. I've tried to use Rochester AI, but I haven't gotten anyone to settle, which really bums me out. <laughs> I, I I'll I'll see you. I'll see the guy. I'll tell the guy that that had him when I see him tomorrow or Monday. Actually, <laughs> he's he's always curious about those Rochesters and good God Almighty, um, they they are tremendous. And as somebody that's used a Rochester influence buck, I, I I will tell you that he is very good at what he does. So that kind of I think flows really over into talking about Casein and protein and why that is an important thing for dairy goat breeders to keep in mind. Yeah. Yep. And alpines, alpines are what I have the most experience with and alpines are a little bit unique relative to other breeds in that there's quite a bit of uh, genotype variation in their casein status. So alpha S1 casein, uh, it's a protein that's found in milk and it correlates to cheese yield. And there are very specific genetic markers that have been identified that correlate to higher or lower yields of alpha S1 casein. There are other multiple other proteins in milk as well. Some of those have genetic tests. Uh, we don't necessarily, there, I don't think there are any one, other ones offered in the US right now. I know Spain has some, um, maybe New Zealand uh, offers some different tests as well. Um, but if People are familiar at all in other livestock species with genomics. Uh, the alpha S1 casein testing is like the most basic form of genomics. We're really looking at one trait and how that works. But it's something that is very valuable because it's either present or not present. So, you know, it's, and it's, a, it's an objective measure. It's not, uh, not dissing the show ring at all. But, you know, at a show ring or appraisal session, you see a goat for eight minutes and, you know, there's human factors involved and maybe the weather was bad that day or she didn't like the trailer ride and didn't make as much milk. The, you know, genetics, the, the genotype of a goat is unchanging and she stands to transmit what she has uh, regardless of environmental impact. So for Alphas when casein in the U.S. population, we have a few different uh, variants. The High variants are A's and B's. Um, so bucks like Alakai and Rochester, if you look up their PTA for uh, protein percent, they're positive for percent, while uh, a lot of the other bucks on the elite list are negative for protein percent. And that is a direct co- uh, direct effect of the fact that they carry these higher, uh, these genes that correlate to higher casein yield. Um, the other, uh, they're also E- variants. So E is kind of a moderate level. A lot of times it gets clumped together with F, but it's actually, there's a considerable difference between E and F. Um, And then F and O1 or N, those are either low or null alleles. And there's, you know, a very, very low level of alpha S1 casein present in animals that are, you know, either homozygous for those low variants or maybe paired with an E. If you have E, B, B E A E A A B B. Those are very high. So especially uh, like Nigerian dwarfs, Nubians are predominantly A B A A B B, and those are breeds that generally have higher solids as well. Sonnens, there's a low level 
distribution of uh, Bs and uh, like I think one line that has As in it uh, currently. Toggenbergs, there's there's been some A's identified and used. So these are where it's really valuable is we can, you know, with the PTAs, we have to wait until a buck has five daughters and, you know, to really gain a high degree of reliability, daughters in multiple herds. But through genetic testing, through utilizing the alpha S1 casein testing, we're able to really fast track that. So if we have, if I've had two bucks born from a doe that I know is an A or B carrier, I'll test both of them. And then, you know, if one of them has the higher variant or a preferable profile, I might use or retain that buck, uh, use him more heavily than his brother. And that's something I know other breeders have done successfully. And it's just kind of a way to fast track that option. And I still, I still, you know, phenotype and their physical appearance makes a difference. So that factors too. Um, but the genetic testing for alpha S1 casein is a really outstanding tool because it lets us sort of speed it, speed ahead in terms of the genetic progress that we can make. And for our listeners who haven't done that genetic testing, you do it the same way you pull um, material for a DNA test and they can do it at the same time. Yeah. And if you, you know, especially with the, you know, as we move into the future and more and more bucks are, uh, have DNA on file, that, you know, you can, even if you don't do it right when they're born or when you register them, you can, you know, if their DNA is on file, you can test their alpha S1 casing status. So um, that's a really great resource. So a question for you, Ben, um, is which, like if you have a buck that is an A or a B buck, is that dominant over an E or an F, for example, or do we... So the way it works with the alpha S1 casein um, genes or alleles is uh, if you have a doe that has two high variants, she's going to have the highest percentage of protein yield. If you have one that has a high and a low, it'll be intermediate in terms of the protein yield. And if you have an animal that has two low uh, copies, then they'll be they'll have the lowest of that group. Does that, okay. does that make sense? Yes, it does. So, so just, I mean, not, not to get specific, but I guess I'm going to, um, I have a doe that was FF mm-hmm. and I bred her to Rochester. Yep. And her daughter is EF. So that would be, she, you know, hopefully with, you know, if you're able to test those animals out, DHI test those animals out, you would find that the daughter would have improved protein yield relative to the dam. And I've already seen that on test. She's a two-year-old. So yeah, cool. It's always always nice when our programs and, you know, the things that we say and talk about, you know, philosophically or academically, it's nice to see them in practice. And that's where, that's where I really like to, I know it gets a little squirmy maybe sometimes to talk about specific animals, but that's where I kind of like to talk about specific animals because you can see, you know, all right, yes, this animal is doing that because, you know, those are what we work with every day. And, you know, we see the results, proof and pudding, all of that. So in a commercial dairy, then that really translates to money, like money in the bank. Yes, absolutely. Most, uh, most of the goat milk um, sold to processing plants in the U S protein is really the big driver in terms of the pricing formula. And that's true uh, in the Midwest, in Vermont, 
and California, Oregon, Idaho, um, protein is really what processors pay the most for. Um, I've talked to somebody in Vermont lately, and they had a very similar ratio to what we have here in California. And it's, it's about, mm, I want to say like eight to 10 times as much for a pound of protein as what it is for a pound of fat, depending on your grade status and your milk quality and all that stuff. Okay. Producers will be paid a lot of times uh, protein prices are up over about 11 or $12 a pound for each pound of protein. And fat is usually like a dollar, $2, maybe $3 again, depending on your exact contract and pricing formula, but really a fraction of what protein is. Okay. So Ben, part of the reason why Cameron and I wanted to do this episode with you was I'm going to take us back a few years back. And I don't remember which list it was, or if it was just something that you put your on your own personal Facebook page, but you said something about just breeding for production. What if breeders just looked at production? We didn't look at anything else in breeding. And I found a quote of something that you had said. This was five years ago on Facebook. Um, I hope this is okay to bring this back up. You said, in my experience, Kids from higher production genetics wean off earlier, grow faster, and come on the milk line sooner. Do you still believe that? Yes, I, I still believe that. I still believe that. And even it's interesting. It's been like a really great experience for me working in different herds because you see things that become consistent one herd to the other. And um, one thing here at Davis. Um, we had a doe, her name was Kit Kat, she was one of our highest producers, um, really not very good components though, especially her fat, quite low. We, I AI'd her to a buck, uh, Sherry's Holt Levi, who is high on the elite list and very high PPAs for milk fat. And, uh, the daughter is a yearling and she checked all those boxes that you just mentioned. She was a rapid grower. She, uh weaned off really smoothly. She freshened as a yearling as our highest producing doe uh, in the yearlings. She She's on the elite list now. She's 98th percentile. And her fat and protein yields are considerably higher than what her dams were. Uh, so sort of all of those things I've seen in multiple different settings. And the one that I'd kind of add is, you know, those are, those are traits that even though it, you're in a commercial setting, you know, you want to have as much milk in the tank to be able to sell or to make into cheese or whatever you might be doing with it. But a lot of those traits are things that are beneficial for everyone. You know, we want kids that are thrifty and healthy and vigorous and grow quickly. And, you know, that we're able to breed to freshen as yearlings and see how they turn out and you know, gather information on their genetics as rapidly as possible. You know, even if it's, even if your focus is show, it's still beneficial because, you know, you want to see the progress that you're making uh, as quickly as possible. Yeah. Yeah. So oh. it's, it works for all of us. Ben, I'd love to just go through Adby Genetics and just find random uh, bucks mm -hmm. and just have you just give me what you're seeing on the PTAs because I think that's a super fascinating thing. And I, 
I like how you can break it down and it makes a lot more sense to me, especially as someone that, that didn't ever want to breed for production and now not being forced to, but uh, being, I have to think about it more as compared to in the past. So that's just, it's super fascinating. And I like when you give examples too, that, that's super fun. And I'm like, okay, this makes sense now. So if you have any more examples, get, keep, keep throwing them out there. Yeah. So actually like on the doe side too, I think it's good to, you know, think about some, there are some does that are really good examples of animals. I think that our goals, whether it's the show ring or for breeding for production, I think that like our goals really aren't as different. What's different is maybe what we tolerate or where our margin of error is and what we're breeding for. But like our ideals in both in, you know, most settings are pretty similar. You know, the scorecard talks about, you know, animals that can function efficiently over a long productive lifetime and, you know, memory systems that indicate heavy milk production over a long period of usefulness. So those are things that are uniform. You know, if somebody has a commercial dairy, they want those things as much as somebody who's in the show ring. And some of the animals that over time really jump out in the show ring are the ones that really combine those productive qualities and type qualities to the most extreme trait uh, degree. The one goat that uh, that I'll mention, who you know has probably been in the conversation lately, was the Sauna National Champion from this year, Sardier. Gandalf Titania. I don't know if you, did you see her, Laura? Oh gosh. She, she was like of, of the goats that stand out in my mind. And I'll always remember from that national show. She's one of them. When she walked into the ring, I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's gotta be her. I mean, she, she was, she was beautiful, just beautiful. So yes, I definitely remember her. Yeah. So she's like, she's a great example of where Steve, who I had the chance to work with at Redwood Hills and um, become friends with. And he was an awesome, awesome mentor. Uh, he, is, he was always very, you know, bred strongly for type and they had to function well as well. But Steve really liked pretty goats. And uh, his first national champion, Tivoli, was the year that I, that I worked at Redwood Hills. We went to nationals in Louisville. And I had the chance to handle Tivoli. Steve uh, was actually at Stonehenge in England that day. Um, <laughs> he said that, you know, he's you know not overly religious or superstitious, but he may have said something there when he was there. Um, and she and Tivoli ended up being national champion. She was an extremely elegant doe. And uh, she then later in life, she had some breeding issues and it was challenging getting her bred. And he uh, offered her to me, this was, I was in Petaluma managing white whale and he offered, you know, if I was able to get her bread, I could have her. And if I got her bread, he wanted the doe kid back. And that was our arrangement. And he, uh, at the time I was using Disrugastella clips, who's a buck with exceptional uh, production numbers. Uh, and most of the, the most elite saunas and, uh, go back to uh, either Eclipse or Eclipse's dam, Ellen Dilly, through other sons. Um, Tivoli did end up conceiving to Eclipse, who was really an extreme milk buck. So we had type on one side with Steve's exceptionally pretty and elegant doves and Eclipse bringing in the milk. And that the resulting daughter was a doe named Triage, who went back to Redwood Hills and to Steve. And then uh, she actually, she ended up being the dam of Titania. So 
that was one where the milk came in through Eclipse and the really beautiful structure and type longevity uh, through Tivoli and that maternal line, Titian was an outstanding, Tivoli's dam was an outstanding brood doe. Um, so I think that there, that's a really great example of how when we, when we, you know, take our structurally correct does, which we see quite a few of uh, in the show ring and uh, in around and kind of bring in a little bit of milk, we can get really exceptional individuals like Titania. And she's, she's a doe. She's very highly rated uh, on the percentile PTA system. I think her milk PTA is maybe uh, 200 or over that. And her percentile ranking has been in the 90s. Uh, so she's a great example of a goat that really brings it all together. Um, other, other ones, she's one that even, you know, had her, had her moment and her glory came to be at the national show. The, the other great part about the PTAs and the PTIs, so the PTA is predicted transmitting ability. PTI is production type index. Those are the little blue or red numbers on the left-hand side on genetics. The PTIs combine type and production. So they, from the production side, they factor PTAM and PTAF. There's some adjustment factors um, that fat is the only solid trait that's weighted there, not protein. So protein doesn't go into the PTIs at all. Um, that's something that hopefully in the future there might be some discussion of considering the economic value of protein. Um, so we've got milk and fat on the production side, and then it also includes the PTAFS, which I won't get into too much, but that that covers that's the PTA for the final score. So that's the type component. And those are brought together. There's two to one that weights production to type at a two to one ratio more heavily for production and then one to two, which weights it more heavily for type and the PTIs. So in a go like Titania, you're able to go to the national show and everybody can see her. And, you know, she is an exceptionally beautiful doe. We're able to see photos of her affairs and her wins. And, but sometimes there are goats that, you know, don't necessarily have the opportunity that she did. Uh, and that's to say that maybe, maybe it was the year of COVID and that they looked really great and we had no national show and they didn't make it to the national show or they didn't freshen the year that nationals was local or something like that. So the PTIs and this, these measures of genetic merit are really valuable because we're able to identify animals based on many data points through their DHI testing and their linear appraisal scores. And we're able to find goats that, you know, maybe everything didn't come together quite on that day. Another a doe that I've admired for some time is uh, in Alpines is, uh, and she has won her class at nationals, but um, didn't quite make it to champion a reserve was a doe, Olentini Yukon Tellingly. And she's a doe that's exceptionally highly rated. She's elite, I think, and very high PTIs. Um, she's a doe that just really kind of brings it together and has all those numbers to back up for quality. Um, in Toggenberg's, uh, the other one, again, this was a doe that she did make a national champion. Is, and I saw that uh, maybe you had an AI the other day to her sire, or your wife did, Cameron, Rubiot. Yes. Um, she's a doe with exceptional numbers. So I think like 
I look at these animals and it really indicates that these system, the, these, these tools, they really work at identifying exceptional individuals uh, and genetic lines. So for right now, since, I mean, obviously we have data that we're collecting on these um, animals that are getting appraised, updating the PTIs are kind of on hold until that can get into the system too, correct? Um, so to some degree, so there, there are another important thing that I didn't mention is there are what are called genetic base changes for PTAs. So that's because it's based on the genetic base or average within a breed and that average inevitably will change over time. Every five years, there's kind of an update and the genetic base changes. So numbers will shift pretty significantly or, you know, sometimes they actually don't shift a lot, but other times they'll shift some every five years or so. The PTIs within genetics are actually automatically updated. So animals that add new data when the PTAs update, which happens, as I mentioned, for production uh, in August and December, and for type in December, those do, it does automatically update the PTI. Now, what's not changing in the PTI and like why SG can't be awarded is there are a couple other adjustment factors, but that still the PTIs are comparable within a breed. Like you can look at, um, you know, list it, look at the top PTI alpines. And, you know, even after that adjustment is able to happen in NG, they'll still, the ones that are at the top will still be at the top. They're just, the exact number might change slightly. Does that make sense? So, yeah, sure. Yes. So, Again, the more times that a doe has um, linear appraisal data points added in there, that also helps with the reliability. Yes. And that's like, that's why it's really uh, significant that, you know, it's kind of, we're a little bit compromised right now and that, you know, herds haven't always been able to get scored and that there's been a sort of lack of consistency. It's been more challenging to have uh, goats be scored on a regular basis. Um, and that it's really vital that, you know, training is uniform and scoring is uniform. Um, because, you know, if it's, if a goat only gets scored once in her life, that data that sticks with her for life. If, you know, you were fortunate to get scored every year and hopefully there was consistency, you know, if there was one year that was a little off, it's going to have less of an impact. Uh, so that's, you know, some considerations on the linear side, um, in terms of how it impacts the data that we have. But yeah, every, you know, every appraisal session goes in there and yeah. Yep. Okay. So I do, there's one, I'll ask you about this Cameron. So the other thing that I'll add about PTI is so the way that I've kind of used them is one, I'll look at the overall list. I'll go in and search, you know, PTI, and then you can sort by breed and buck or doe. And usually I look at two to one, you know, as a, probably made clear production is very important to me um, and in my breeding program. And one to two, sometimes you get some real outliers in terms of, you know, animals that, uh, you know, within their little herd had exceptional type, but in the broader population, maybe don't stand out as much. But on the production side, very consistently, the highest animals do, do stand out. And on alpines, I've, the way I've kind of used it is, you know, identify, and this is what I kind of recommend to people is, 
if you, you know, your own animals, if you've been on tests and appraised multiple times, again, the more data that goes in, the more accurate the numbers will be and the data will be. But go in and, you know, search your herd name, Kickapoo Valley, and look at who the highest PTI individuals. Like, I think you had a doe a few years ago, Make It Holy. Yep. And she did, I think she did really well, maybe as a two-year-old at Nationals also. Is that right? Yeah, yep. You're correct. Yep. Yeah. So, like, she's a doe. She's one of your highest rated does. Like, she's one that's always kind of intriguing to me. Uh, And so I like to, like, if there's a herd that I'm admiring... I'll search them and look at who their highest individuals are. And if you look at kind of the, again, if it's a larger herd that's been on part of the performance programs for a number of years, then, you know, you look at those top five to 10 animals. And a lot of times they're the goats that really stand out in that herd. You know, goats like uh, Tellingly that I mentioned and Rubiot and uh, Blissberry Valahuya, um, goats that, you know, we think of, you know, as, wow, she was a really standout in the breed and, you know, within this herd that we admire. Occasionally, and this is what I really love about it, because, you know, we see the goats that are at the national show and that are all over Facebook and you know, we're attracted to those goats, but there are a lot of other good and really exceptional goats out and about. And, you know, this is a tool that we're able to see those goats or identify them, even if they don't make it to a lot of shows or the national show. So one goat recently that had kind of, she'd been on my radar for a while is a goat from Ohio the purebred alpine and she had very good uh, production evaluation and her, her type numbers kept creeping up and now she has really outstanding ptis as a doe uh, addy hill major lotus yep do you, do you recall her i think you made her best in show at I, one point. I have i have yes i've seen her she's a beautiful goat you're, you're like reading my mind now what i want to talk about continue bed on the edge of my seat so i ordered i based on uh I had been watching her and then I had this friend that called me and was like, there's a goat in Ohio that you would just love. And I was like, was it Lotus? And he was like, yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I've got a." So I called Mary and I ordered a buck. She AI'd her. Uh, very fortunately, she got her to settle the Roburn's legacy. Um, and then uh, this summer I picked up a son from Lotus and legacy and he's beautiful. And hopefully his kids will be beautiful too. But I'm like, I'm really excited about that. I, Previously, there was a there's an alpine herd in uh, California, Cytheria, Robin Skillman, who uh, she showed quite a bit in the 80s and 90s, but less so recently. But she's been on test and appraised for many years, so lots of good data going in. Um, I purchased a buck from her uh, about 10 years ago, Flashpoint, and she was like, you know, it was a herd again. It hadn't they didn't really show much lately. That I was just used him. It was kind of going out on a limb. And he did, you know, he was a really consistent buck and his daughter's milked really well and had good front ends and good rear legs and just a lot of positive type traits that in my experience, you know, you, you never know completely what you're getting when you bring in new animals, but the, the PTAs for production and the PTIs are really the, the most reliable way, as long as it kind of passes the field test too, because I still... I still apply that. Like, you know, I don't get too carried away. If, you know, I'm like, eh, these goats really don't quite do it for me. But if I see those numbers and then it passes the field test to, you know, there's been a, I've been really happy with that way of uh, bringing in new genetics. It's worked really well. Okay. I, I have two questions here. First, let's talk about the field test. What is the field test for you, Ben? Because that's something I think Laura and I have talked about. You just got to feel it. 
but I don't know how to describe it or quantify it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's tough. I mean, for me with, you know, the Alpines, especially, you know, I like, again, going back to the early cherry land animals that, um, they, uh, had a lot of influence from sodium oaks and shehanico and those sort of, you know, does that were really correct and stylish and, you know, kind of just meet the overall type that I like and appreciate. Um, so that's, that's a little bit of what the field test is. Um, and sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll compromise a little bit. And a lot of times we do that when we want to bring in a, a new buck, we're like, well, we're going to try this. It's a little bit different. Um, but you know, Overall, it's, you know, it's the same as it is, you know, if you're, you know, focusing on type, it's, you know, is she, is she the style and type or, you know, are these genetics the overall style and type that I really appreciate? Gotcha. Well, and that's, that's, they make, they make you want to go out to the barn and enjoy milking and, you know, those sorts of things. Okay. I'm over here throwing my hands up in the air like, yes, that is it. That, <laughs> it makes me want to call my goats pretty pasture pets, even though I know that some of them are posty. Yeah, no, that's, I love, like, this buck that I got from Mary, like, he, we set up a little quarantine pen, and it's right outside the back door that we walk out uh, to go to the barn, and, like, I just love going out the back door, because he's so beautiful every time I walk past him. I think, I think that it factor, that, that unsung factor, wouldn't you say that that is really what is at the heart of um, a breeder's eye. That's why, that's why, you know, it's great to breed to numbers. It's great to use, you know, PTAs and PTIs and, and all of that. But truly breeding animals is really an art. I mean, you, you, you just have to have that feel or you don't have that feel and it's going to feel maybe a little different for each of us. And that's okay. Yeah. Yep. No, the feel it's, it's the feel, the feel is real. And, you know, unfortunately it's difficult to define and put our finger on and, but you know, the kind of, you know, the, the art of it is as much fun as the science of it because, you know, we're able to do these things like alpha S1 casein testing and you know studying the evaluations, you know, that's, that's an exciting component too. Um, so I think like they just complement one another really well. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I want to walk, I want to walk a scenario past you, Ben here. I've got a yep. buck. I love his mom. I, I fell in love with his mom Passed the field test. I got a semen out of the buck there. He's got a low PTI score there. Do I need to be leery of that? Even though I love, I love the field test, but do I need to be weary of that because the PTI is low or I might not get milk, but that I remember that I love that goat. Should I be worried? Well, so it like, you know, it kind of depends on your goals because, you know, if you're willing to compromise and, you know, maybe the daughters don't milk as much, then maybe it's okay. But where I like, I don't know, you know, who exactly the goat or the buck is, but where it really is significant for me is, you know, when you can compare animals within genetic groups, that's whether it's a herd that, you know, might have similar genetics across the herd, or if you have a daughter with multiple bucks or a doe with multiple bucks. Um, you know, then I'll be inclined, well, you know, which of these sons has the best numbers? Because odds are, you know, that's probably going to really like the numbers are relatively reliable if they've been used in multiple herds and, you know, have a high reliability on the PTAs. So that's a, like the other thing that I would be 
you know, not too harsh if the PTIs are lower is, you know, if the reliability is really low on the milk test data. Or there's also, there are, there are REL's or reliability for the type traits as well. So we can look at those reliabilities also. And then are there some bucks with high PTIs you're just like, I'm good to stay away from that? Um, I'm just curious. Honestly, probably not. Okay. Um, because the other thing, the other thing that happens, the way these numbers work, I've talked about how it compares within a herd. The way that I look at it is it's win-win. So if you use a buck that you're a little bit leery of, because he has high, you know, he has high PTIs, but maybe doesn't pass the deal test as much. If you use him and his daughters don't milk and aren't very pretty and don't score as well as your other goats, your goats' numbers are going to go up. Does that make sense? The the PTI numbers are going to go up, but maybe the other numbers that you may be looking at might not. Um, well, I mean, even even the production stuff. Like if you bring if you use a buck a little bit that has really high production evaluation, high PDMs from milk and fat and protein, and then you use them in your herd and your your other stuff out milks his daughters, the PTAs on your goats okay. should go up based on how that works. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm, I'm smelling what you're stepping in. Absolutely. Or or his could fall precipitously, and then you could be like, "Look, I was right." <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's interesting because like I am going through. I brought up epigenetics because we're all purebred alpine people here, and I'm sorry, people, if you're not purebred alpine enthusiasts, you're going to have to bear with us for at least another twenty minutes on this one. And I'm looking at some of these, and I'm just like, I'm not too sure I want to use. X, Y, Z, you know what I'm saying? And maybe that's not what I'm breeding for, but you know, you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I've got an example, Ben, that I'm going to bring up here. Okay. As a, as a former Nubian breeder. Okay. Yeah. War paint acres, super buck. Right. What about him? So he's an SG. He had 179 daughters. His reliability is 96%. Yeah. Okay. But I also know, I mean, his numbers look pretty cool, right? Right. Yep. But I also know what those daughters looked like. And I mean, it was quite a long time back. And and while I think he had, you know, some nice daughters, probably not the type of daughters that we would have today that would be, that would be winning in the show ring, for example, or appraising highly today. Yeah. And on, on older bucks, especially in breeds like Nubians, the challenge is that maybe there hasn't been a lot of progress on the production side. Um, so, you know, you would gain possibly production using a buck like Superbuck, um, but not necessarily the type. Yeah. You know, that's why his numbers might still be high is because from a production standpoint, he is still an exemplary individual. And so when you look at his PTI, two to one is 50. One to two is a negative 57. So that, that describes exactly what you're saying that, you know, they're type wise, less what we generally want and production wise more generally. what we want. Okay. 
Okay. Well, it's, it's interesting because I brought up the Nubian list and I was like, oh, I'm just going to quickly click through these. And number two on the, the, the PTI list is, is Candyman. I'm like, okay, well, that makes sense there on on that. And, you know, if you're a Nubian breeder and you don't know who Candyman is, then uh, you probably need to do some research uh, for that. And then I'm going to just look at the Toggenbergs just because out of curiosity, because I am allegedly a Toggenberg enthusiast now. Um I recognize a lot of these names, but none that just roll off the tongue that I could say. Does that make sense to everybody? But but I, I see some of these. I'm like, okay, like I see the value in some of those, but they're from the 90s as well. So like Candyman, he's a good example. And kind of that, that discussion that um, maybe prompted this podcast uh, a while back of breeding for production or, you know, restricting to bucks that are high production bucks is if we look at the lists, you know, it's not saying, you know, not necessarily proposing, oh, well, you know, every buck on the list is the perfect buck for everyone. But there are a lot of really standout bucks that show up as, you know, very positive for production bucks like Candyman and Castamer's Tothlock was very high on the list for a long time. In in his era, Sason, who was, you know, multiple national champion daughters and premier sire. Uh, he was a buck that had exceptional production numbers at the time. Um, they relative to the breed, they've dropped some, uh, his type numbers are still quite high. Um, and there are, there are still people that are using Saison very effectively. I think, uh, um, in Idaho, Tracy Stampke yep. has a really nice Saison daughter right now. Um, and I actually, I can say I used, a. uh, Shehenico T.S. Zombie, who was a buck born in the 80s, and he has very high type numbers, and a daughter of his uh, was reserve champion at California State Fair this year. Um, so senior, senior doe in the Alpine Show, reserve champion, was a Shehenico T.S. Zombie daughter. Cool. So- Togs are kind of unique because... Um, I don't know how familiar everybody is with their history, but um, there were some extremely milky togs in the 70s and 80s and, you know, goats that milked 4,000 pounds or more and really exceptional individuals in that regard. And they had pretty strong type too, especially relative to the other goats. I think maybe, Laura, you can speak to that. You know, togs, togs in that era in the 70s and especially the 80s, they're pretty impressive individuals. Would you agree with that from the... I would agree. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's, you know, sort of why a lot of their older bucks have maintained high numbers is they were on the type side. The PTAFSs are not breed specific. So those togs were so far ahead of what other breeds, the Hoosier Acres Clara was so far ahead of uh, the Warpaint Anchors Superbuck Daughters that her numbers and, you know, numbers of animals related to her are still going to be quite high. Um, and on the production side, there were some exceptional individuals as well. Um, and togs, togs, like I said, um, for PTIs, it weighs the for production milk and fat and togs have really struggled in recent decades with very low components, um, very low butter fat percentage. So that's why it's, you might see a lot of those well, it's really inter- it's really interesting because I pulled up the American Tog list here, and every single buck on the first page 
is from there's only one but two bucks from the 2000s and but when you start to get to like page three or four on the pti list that's when you start to see the bucks that probably we're playing with in our breeding program and it's like okay maybe we're not breeding for that but they also still do have a high pti numbers which is inter- it's interesting there and kind of my my thing there and we're probably rambling but that but that's okay Yeah, it's kind of addictive to just kind of get in there and start sorting through the numbers. And it's like, like I said, it's really where I where I like to use them is, you know, if I'm looking at a group of animals, uh, they're kind of two areas. If I'm looking at a group of animals, it lets me, you know, identify, okay, these are the ones that generally conform to what, you know, our overarching goals are in terms of production and type. And then also it's a way to, you know, identify some new things that maybe I haven't seen before. Um, and then maybe I'm like, well, you know, maybe I'll get some semen and AI a couple goats to this or to that. Um, yeah, I think it would make it really hard not to be a semen hoarder. <laughs> I know this, this is a tool to use it, not to hoard it. <laughs> but you want this and you want that. And it's like a kid in a candy shop, you know? Well, Ben, Laura wants me to cut you off. Because and I've, okay. I've got hundreds of questions actually, because I think this is you've got so much knowledge and it's very interesting. But I want to wrap up with this question to you, Ben. Here, we talked about regional differences of raising goats, and there are challenges wherever you raise goats at. What do you think the biggest change from raising goats on the east coast to the west coast was? Um, the the single biggest is the simple reliability and accessibility to good forage on the West Coast. Um, it's not always cheap. It's actually anymore. It's never cheap. But, you know, we're able to access good quality, especially alfalfa, very readily. It's expensive, but it's there. And on the East Coast, you know, as you two talked about, Laura said it's been dry. Cameron, you said it's been wet. You know, you all really don't live that, that far apart. There are a lot of regional, vari- there's a lot of regional variation and, you know, drought and how much precipitation you get, whether it's dry enough to, you know, not too wet that you can't get hay to cure, not too dry that doesn't grow at all. Um, so the forage, that's, that's a, a big difference. I think that's, yeah, I'd say that's the biggest difference. Otherwise, there are a lot of, there are a lot of similarities and you know there are a few different challenges but that's the single biggest defining difference i think i this this whole discussion has made me like totally wanting to delve more into all of these numbers and look at the bucks in in my tank and as i've mentioned on this podcast before um winning out some of the animals in my tank is a is a goal that i have and this is a really awesome tool to kind of help make that happen i think yeah and that's i've i've used it a lot that way you know in the 
semen semen hoarding business of you know I'll get a we'll get a tank and it'll have a bunch of old bucks in it and I'm like well I don't really know a whole lot about these but I'll be like well hey this buck has really high PTIs and you know his dam was also national champion 92 and milk 4,000 pounds all those things are awesome but you know maybe I'll, I'll utilize him and another buck that you know with a similar pedigree doesn't have very high PTI I'm like well maybe that one just needs to be thawed out yeah cool Ben thank you so much for spending this hour and a half ish with us this has been just amazing. Amazing. We're going to have to have you back for some more lessons, I think. All right. Yes. Thank you for having me. And um, clearly this is something I'm really passionate about. So I want to invite anyone that has questions or wants to talk more, feel free to message me on Facebook, uh, text me, send me an email. I'm you know here and would be happy to help people connect with resources and answer questions. Ben, where can the listeners find out more information about your, your goats, the barely herd, and then your wife's herd as well there. Yeah. So uh, Rebecca is really great about updating uh, her website and some of my animals are on that as well. Uh, so if you search Starlet Lace, that's her, her name, Starlet Lace Dairy Goats. Uh, you can find uh, her goats and some of mine there. Also, mine are probably less up to date. Again, she's she's good on those things. I'm a little. My goats are kind of elusive. They don't get shown a whole lot. And occasionally, take pictures, uh, but um, so yeah, they're it's there. Occasionally updated. Occasionally, I post pictures on Facebook as well. Um, okay, well, listeners, thank you for spending this time with us again and uh, you can find us on Facebook too at Goat Gab and uh, if you have comments that you'd like to make ideas for future podcasts uh, just want to give us a shout out you can leave it on our Facebook you can give us feedback through Apple Podcasts or any place that you listen to your um, to, to your episodes of Goat Gab so we're glad that you spent this time with us and have an awesome week <laughs>